You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're on 3CR, and welcome to Listening Notes, stories about politics, art, and activism. I'm Judith Peppard, and I'll be taking you through for the next half hour. And a big thanks to Black Noise Radio for their show today. I begin by acknowledging that 3CR is broadcasting from the land of the Kulin Nations, true owners, custodians, and caretakers of this land, and I pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging, and recognize that sovereignty has not been ceded, always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. Later in the show, we're going to hear from Amandine Denis Ryan. She's head of national programs at ClimateWorks, and she'll be telling us about how Australian superannuation funds are working toward net zero emissions by 2050. But first up, we're looking at Scott Morrison's announcement last week, his intention to expand the use of gas as part of his plan for recovery from the coronavirus recession. The announcement has been widely criticised by economists, investors, insurers and environmental groups for being out of touch with Australia's current energy needs and the urgency of addressing climate change. Cam Walker is the campaign's coordinator for Friends of the Earth Australia. He's been active on environment and climate justice issues for over 25 years. He joined me last Wednesday. This is part of the plan for the country to respond to the COVID crisis And this is particularly just about boosting gas. The key elements are developing five new gas basins in the Northern Territory, Queensland, and probably Northern New South Wales. That will cost about 28.3 million. They're demanding that the electricity producers find a plan to create about a thousand megawatts of new dispatchable energy. So that's about half the size of one of the coal-fired power stations in the Latrobe Valley. And they are also saying if the industry doesn't do that, then we will look into building a new gas-fired power station in La Hunter Valley in New South Wales. Do you need this uh, energy that uh, Scott Morrison is talking about? No, we don't. And this is the unfortunate thing. It's a climate disaster if they were to proceed with it. The argument is that Australia is struggling under high gas prices and so therefore we need to create all this new gas production. It misses the entire point, which is the reason our gas prices are so high is because the federal government has aggressively pursued for years the development of a liquid natural gas, an LNG export industry, which means we ship the vast majority majority of our gas overseas. It means that you and I as gas consumers, you know, sitting in Melbourne are in effect competing on the international market. And that's what's driving our prices up. The government is ignoring that fact. They're not talking about reducing exports. They are having some conversation about whether these new contracts might be required to keep some of the gas in Australia, but they're ignoring the elephant in the room that gas consumption is going down. And there's a whole range of reasons for that. Gas is used in many circumstances, in the home, in manufacturing, in commercial purposes, and also for what they call peak load capacity. And using it for peak load capacity, for instance, really cold days when everyone has their heating on or really hot days when everyone has their aircon on, the cost of producing that gas is insanely high per kilowatt hour. They're wanting to hedge our bets to ensure we have the dispatchable energy for a potentially 30 days in the year. 
and then this turbine will sit there unused for the rest of the year. And if you and I as taxpayers have paid for it to be built, we've paid for this thing that will sit there that will over time become a stranded asset. So you've used the term stranded asset and it's been used a lot. I'm hearing it on different stories that I'm doing. What actually happens when an asset is stranded? It's like if you buy a house and then someone builds a toxic waste dump next door, you're kind of left with a stranded asset because no one wants to buy it. It's exactly the same thing, really. What's happening is there's the proposal to put all this good public money into building this new plant in the Hunter Valley. What will happen is the cost of gas will keep going up because gas is a non-renewable resource. The cost of renewables and storage will keep going down as the technology improves. So no one will want to buy this gas-powered fire station. These new gas fields, the five gas fields they're talking about, if they were commercially viable, industry would have already developed them. They've been up there and digging around and exploring and doing test drilling for many, many years. So why haven't they done it as yet? The reason is that we're talking about unconventional gas. That's the gas you have to extract with the process of fracking, hydraulic fracturing. Very expensive. So this gas won't be cheap. It just doesn't make sense public money to prop up and to publicly own gas pipeline infrastructure, supporting the development of this gas hub and so potentially a gas-fired power station. If we want to spend public money and in effect nationalise electricity production, which we think would be a great idea, let's put it into things that will last. Let's put it into renewables and storage. Yes, these companies must be seen Australia as a last chance saloon you know, one of the few countries prepared to spend taxpayer dollars on potentially stranded assets, as you said earlier. Absolutely. And the environmental group, which is connected to us, Market Forces, has just re-released its data on the gas company donations to the major political parties in Australia. There's a very long and very well-documented connection between the major parties and the gas sector. And it does appear that the coalition is putting its ideological commitment to business as usual use of fossil fuels ahead of what's actually required, which is cutting edge and commercially viable renewable technology. We've seen it also play out with their review of the environmental protection and biodiversity conservation legislation. This is the federal legislation that manages environmental approvals for projects like gas and coal mining in Australia. They did a review of the legislation that they were required to do, but before the review even reported, they rewrote the legislation, i.e. they did what they wanted, which will facilitate further coal mining and gas drilling didn't even bother to wait for the independent review that hundreds of organisations committed thousands of hours writing submissions and thinking about and developing policy for. So there's this kind of veneer of democracy, whereas in reality what is going on is we have a coalition government very connected to the fossil fuel industry, very heavily dominated with climate change deniers, and they want to continue with this technology from the 20th century at any cost. Cam Walker, Campaigns Coordinator for Friends of the Earth Australia, pointing out how the federal government is using the review of the Environmental Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act to facilitate its plans for a gas-led recovery. 
this is part of the process to bring us out of the economic impacts of the pandemic. And it's really important to understand that per kilowatt hour, there are many more jobs in renewables than there are in gas. And the jobs that will be created in gas are years away. And many of them will be remote because the gas hub is in central Queensland. We're talking about fly and fly out workers. We're not talking about people that are doing it tough right now in Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane, which is the majority of people in the country that are actually struggling economically. What we need is smart options now. Solar panels on the roofs of every public building and every sports facility in the country could be building social housing and public housing, and that would solve a whole bunch of other problems and we could make sure they're highly energy efficient. There's all these things that are job-rich that don't require long planning approval process phase If we are going to put in excess of $50 million of taxpayers' money into new projects, then they should be projects that make sense, that are fit for purpose in the 21st century and which alleviate rather than contribute to climate change. I understand there is a National Day of Action planned for Friday, September 25th. What's going to be happening? It's the school strikers for climate. So the youth groups and the student groups have called another Day of Action. They had a fantastic one last year. They've called it again for this year and their focus is no gas-led recovery. Their key demands are that we put public funds into renewables and into storage and into energy efficiency, that we develop just transition plans for people who do work in the fossil fuel sector at present, and that we get on with meeting our climate change commitments. It varies from state to state. There are face-to-face events in many states at this point. I think all the Victorian ones are virtual events, but if you just do a web search for school strike for climate September 25, you will be able to find details. It would be great if we could uh, come out in whatever form, be it on the streets or virtually, and show our support for these amazing young people who, after all, will be inheriting the world that we are creating now. Cam Walker, Campaigns Coordinator for Friends of the Earth Australia. Did you get out to the student strike last year? So many people did. Here's how it sounded on the day. We're going to march off. We're going to march off together to Treasury Gardens, batting down Swanson Street. And we're going to make sure that the whole city and the whole world hears us. And we're going to tell them what we're going to do. Why would you not be here? You know, there's lots of people who, for various reasons, can't, and we just uh, need to support the students and the young people who are really taking such a good lead. It's crucial. I mean, what what else can you say? Actually, concerned about the lack of action on climate change. I actually despair for the for my grandchildren, particularly, about the world that we're going to be leaving them. And what do you think of the crowd? I think it's quite amazing. I've been to lots of rallies before, and because I've got a bung knee, I come and sit at the side and watch it. I've been watching this one for half an hour now, and I still can't see the end. I reckon it's one of the biggest rallies I have ever seen. And any idea how many people? I reckon about 150,000 at least. When, when we had the um, union one with, against John Howard, that was 100,000. This is bigger than that. Oh, when we go on climate strike, oh, when we go on climate strike.
sounds and voices from last year's student strike here in Melbourne. Support them any way you can this Friday. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR. The show is Listening Notes. I'm Judith Peppard, and it's great to have you with us today as we move into spring and embrace the warmer weather. And now we're going to hear about new research on how Australian superannuation funds are moving toward a net zero emissions future by 2050. Climate Works is an independent body within the Monash Sustainable Development Institute. It aims to accelerate the transition to net zero emissions for Australia, Southeast Asia and the Pacific. And last week, Climate Works released a report on the results of research conducted with 20 Australian superannuation funds. The analysis found that while 20% had no disclosed portfolio emissions reduction targets, 60% were undertaking activities to reduce the emissions intensity of their portfolios, and 20% of the superannuation funds assessed have targets, or at least aspired to achieve, net zero emissions by 2050 for their investment portfolios. And three super funds, HESTA, Cebus, and UniSuper, are leading the way because they've committed to achieve net zero emissions by 2050 across their entire portfolios. Amandine Denis-Ryan is head of national programs at ClimateWorks, and we caught up last Wednesday. The report on superannuation funds is part of ClimateWorks' Net Zero Momentum Tracker assessment series. So I began by asking Amandine about the series. The Net Zero Momentum Tracker brings organizational emissions reduction commitments together in one place. We've already done five reports, which are property, banking, retail, transport, and local government. The idea is to demonstrate which businesses are aligned with the Paris Climate Goals and what can other organizations do to improve their performance. The latest report, Superannuation Sector 2020, looks at uh, the superannuation sector's moves on emissions. Why did you look at the super sector? We did that because it's a very influential sector. Today, superannuation funds own almost half of Australia's shares. And by 2040, experts expect that they would own 60% of ASX listed equity. So that means that the decisions of the funds make really matter. They have a really big influence on those large companies that compose Australia's economy. In the last few years, uh, when we talked to funds, they already had an interest in climate risks, but they often said that they couldn't make emission reduction commitments 
because that wouldn't necessarily be aligned with their requirements to target returns. But in recent years, it's become really obvious that climate risks, you know, both physical and transition risks, so the risks from a decarbonizing economy, becoming really financial. And that has been reinforced by calls from regulators, financial regulators, for organizations and investors to act on climate change. It sounds like superannuation funds can also contribute to Australia's decarbonization. Yes, absolutely. As I mentioned before, they have a big influence on Australia's companies, but they also own a lot of Australian infrastructure and assets. So they have a really big impact. What we've seen in our report is that in just the last three months, there's been a real change in what the superannuation industry is doing. In June, the first fund announced a net zero by 2050 commitment for their whole investment portfolio. And they were soon followed by CBUS. And now just this week, Unisuper has also followed suit. This is really important for the sector. They already did some activities on uh, emissions reductions, but not nearly at that scale. So this sets a very important precedent that hopefully other funds will follow. Yes, it's pretty significant to see three large super funds make that commitment. It's also good for people from your report, people to find out what their own super funds are doing and uh, and make changes if they're in a position to do that. And we have 60% of the funds looking at strategies. What kinds of things are those 60% of funds doing? Engagement, low carbon investment and divestment in some instances. So engagement, super funds often either directly or through other organizations or particular initiatives, engaging with companies about a number of topics. In terms of climate, uh, what we've seen is that in the last few years, there was a lot of engagement around climate risks and disclosure. So they were asking companies to analyze and disclose their climate risks. But in the last year or two, some companies, especially the largest emitters, have been asked about setting emissions reduction targets or actions. And just this week, the Climate Action 100 Plus uh, initiative, which is a collective engagement initiative by over 500 investors in Australia, 13 of the funds that we analysed are part of this initiative. So that initiative actually sent letters to 161 CEOs and uh, chairs of the board of some of the world's largest greenhouse gas emitting companies. And they called on the businesses to put in place net zero business strategies and to define targets to support delivery. And they associated with the publication of a benchmark for what good practice looks like, which they will now use to assess the progress of those companies. So you can see that there's a real ramp up on that engagement and what is being asked. On the low carbon investments, what we are seeing is a lot of funds are investing in renewables and green buildings. Although in many cases, this is not necessarily driven by an internal target, but by making voluntary sustainable investment options available to their members. Finally, divestment. We are seeing some funds deciding to divest. In general, that's really limited to the most exposed sectors, in particular thermal coal. We're really talking about the companies that superannuation funds invest in. So the super funds are asking the companies that they invest in be more accountable with regard to climate change. Why do you think this change is happening now? There's been an enormous amount of momentum growing. So I mentioned that financial regulators have been making increasing declarations on climate risks and the importance of addressing them in the last year or two. But also just a year ago, the first investors committed to Net Zero. So the Net Zero uh, Asset Owner Alliance was launched in New York late September last year. And in the last few months and weeks, we've seen a lot of tools and methodologies being developed 
So a lot of funds are not necessarily comfortable, you know, making a commitment without knowing how they'll do this. This is not completely figured out now, but there's a lot of progress that has been made in that last year. There's 20% of funds that aren't doing anything, it seems, or at least there's no record that you could find. Why is that, do you think? I think some funds are still making supportive general comments, but have not actually made specific actions. It could be that it's not their priority at the moment, but hopefully it's on their radar and they will start taking more serious action soon. And if you've just joined us on 3CR, I'm speaking with Amandine Denis Ryan from ClimateWorks about a report they published last week on how Australian superannuation funds are moving toward net zero emissions. I asked her what superannuation funds are doing about lack of government policy. Definitely, there's usually a preference to um, work in a policy environment that is aligned with the actions that they're trying to make. And there are some calls by investors to see progress on that. What would you be advising superannuation funds to do right now? What we're really hoping to see is for MARF funds to follow in the steps of uh, those three that have made a net zero commitment. What we're finding is that setting a net zero target can be a real transformative action. It moves you from thinking incrementally, how can I reduce my emissions a bit further, to what we call backcasting, so working backwards from an ambitious goal. And we also think that by setting net zero targets, investors are actually creating the conditions in which those targets are, have more chances of being achieved because they're sending a strong signal uh, to companies, to governments, and they're really spurring the development of those methodologies and tools uh, that are going to help achieve this. For example, in the last year, we've seen the development of a new type of bond, uh, transition bonds. So the low carbon investments and divestments are really focused on the edges, if you want, of the economy, the very green or the very dark brown but transition bonds, uh, the idea is that they could help the companies in between transition to a net zero future and then provide the capital to support that transformation. Developments like that are very exciting and they are incentivized by ambitious commitments. I just want to thank Climate Works for the report. I will uh, put a link on my website for the program, 3CR Listening Notes. Can people keep up to date on your activities on your own website? Yes, absolutely. So climateworksaustralia.org has all of our latest publications and people can also follow us on social media. We're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook. Very happy to provide more insight into climate action around, in Australia and around the world. Amandine Denis Ryan, Head of National Programs at Climate Works. And there's lots of great information on their website, so do check it out. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. And we're coming to the end of Listening Notes. A big thank you to our guests, Cam Walker and Amandine Denny ryan Stay tuned to 3CR because Diaspora Blues is coming up next. Take care, stay well, 
and I'll catch you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.